This is Discovery Seminar, session number three, Our Values. Okay, so this is uh, session three, Our Priorities, the Values that Shape Our Church. So Bill just finished up uh, going through the, the theology of, of our church and that shapes our church. And so I think a good way to kind of look at this, this session is this is the practical theology. This is how you see our theology actually play out in what we do. Um, you know, if you visit different churches, you, you inevitably find different values, different things that people emphasize um, other, over other things. Uh, Jesus told us uh, in Matthew to, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as a response to the gospel. And we see these two aspects played out in these first two things listed here in your, in your binder. Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom, and we do that by, by trying to play our part in the, the Great Commission. You look at your, uh, that handout there. It says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that's how we, we seek to, to live out uh, seeking first God's kingdom is by being a part of a church who has a mission to take the, the gospel to a lost and a dying world. Jesus also told us to, to seek first his righteousness, which is first and foremost by believing the gospel. I think Bill went over just the, the, the our church, um, more than anything, wants to be a church that's centered on the gospel and, and, and believing that you know, we are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then as a response to that, Jesus calls us to, to live out the great commandment. In Matthew 22, verses 30, 35 through 40, he said, oh, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I've often been struck by, uh, in John uh, 13, verses 34 and 35, because this has been the commandment throughout the whole Bible, right? To love God and to love one another. But Jesus says, a new commandment I give to, give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so Jesus says this is a new commandment because it's now shaped and informed by the gospel because, you know, he, he was about to display, you know, his, his love for us as he was washing to the feet of the disciples. You remember that they said that it, uh, it said that Jesus loved them to the very end. And so now we understand what this love looks like. And now we're called to go out and to love one another because he first loved us in that way. And so these are the two instructions that really kind of shape these three dimensions of our church's life. There's a, a vertical dimension to where we're, we're loving God and worshiping God. An internal dimension, we're, we're loving one another, and that's how the world even knows um, that we belong to God. And then an external dimension, bringing the gospel to those who don't know Christ, which is actually the most loving thing that we can do for our neighbors and um, the lost people around us. And so this says, while all true churches seek to be faithful to these different aspects of Christ's command, no two churches will pursue them in exactly the same way. And so we've kind of identified these as our priorities, the priorities that shape our life as a church. 
and, and really kind of help us to determine and to sort through the kinds of activities that we do and pursue um, as a church, both both as a church and individually. And so if you kind of wrapping your mind around these really helps you to understand uh, who we are as a church. So the first one is, is applying the gospel. It says, although we, we say this often, applying the gospel, it's no mere slogan. It's a thumbnail su- summary of what it means to observe all that Jesus commanded in light of his person, teaching, and work. Um, yeah, this, and it says this seeks to honor Jesus' claims that all of Scripture points to him in, in some way. And really, I, you know, I, I, I've often said that I don't know that there's anything that has strengthened my faith more than seeing how that's so true, how all of the Old Testament was just all about Jesus. I think Bill read this verse in John 5.39 to you. It says, You search the Scriptures because that in them you think that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And it's, uh, this follows the New Testament practice of rooting the Christian life in all its dimensions to Christ's person and work. So all of our life as Christians flows out of the gospel, out of what Jesus has already done for us. Philippians 1.27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we desire at Sovereign Grace Church to, to be a community that views all of our life, our beliefs, values, obedience, through what Jesus has done for us. And it says this, makes, this involves making real connections between the gospel, our thinking, our behavior, and all of the things that kind of make up our, our daily lives. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, we, we, Paul talks about how Jesus bought us with his precious blood, that we're not our own, that we were bought with a price, and he tells us to therefore honor God with our bodies. And so that's what we try to do. We try to live out every day, you know, in everything we do, you know, thinking very carefully about how this glorifies Jesus because we aren't our own, because he bought us with this precious blood. And so those are the things that, that shape kind of the life of our church. Uh, secondly, we believe in expository preaching, and this is one of the most foundational ways that we seek to keep the gospel central. Um, th- this speaks of a, a value, an activity, and an effect. And we believe this because God has ordained his word to be the saving and sanctifying instrument of his people. In Romans ten fourteen and 17, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Yeah, I think it's in uh, Galatians 3. It's very interesting because Paul says that Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed before your eyes um, as crucified. And the interesting thing is that is obviously they didn't, the Galatian t- church didn't see Jesus, but what he was talking about was that they, they, they saw him through their ears. By Paul's preaching, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before them. And so we believe that that's you know, how God works in people to open people's eyes to who Jesus is. And it's, it's, a, it's a saving work and a sanctifying work. The gospel is not only the power to, to save us from our sins, um, but it's also the power to sanctify us and to help us grow in the Christian life. And that's what he says in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So God has ordained preaching as the unique means by which his word is brought effectively to his church. Throughout salvation history, God has chosen to transmit his word to his people through commissioned servants. Uh, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, 
God's standard way of securing and maintaining his person-to-person communication with us, his human creatures, is through the agency of persons whom he sends to us as his messengers. Such were the prophets and apostles, and such supremely was Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. That is the succession in which preachers today are called to stand. And everywhere in the, in the church in the New Testament, we see regular teaching and preaching of God's word. It's fascinating to me to read through the book of Acts because the book of Acts personifies the Word of God. It's like the Word of God does this, the Word of God prevailed, the Word of God moved on. And so we see how how powerful and active God's Word is. And so that's why we, we value expository preaching. It says expository preaching, that is, preaching that explains and applies Scripture in its biblical context enables God's Word to shape our lives individually and as a church. And so we believe in expository preaching because we believe that the power of God's word is what affects people's lives and changes people's lives, not, not Lynn's ingenuity and wisdom, not Ron's wisdom, certainly not mine. And so, so you know, expository preaching is simply opening the text to people, reading the text to people, and explaining what that means and letting God work through that powerfully in people's lives. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 4-2, Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's what the Bible is. And so he says, as a necessary consequence of that, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so we believe that, that God's word is inspired and breathed out by him. And then Paul charges him in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the, the heavenly assembly to preach the word. So Paul had a very, very high view of preaching because that's the instrument that God uses to save and to sanctify his people. The gospel is the, the power of God unto salvation. And so that's why we, we, we seek to preach not only expository sermons, but, but sermons that, that take the whole scope of scripture in their context because Jesus said that all of the Bible was about him. And so our goal is that you hear the gospel every single week, that every single week you're reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for you because it's, it's that, that the, the, the gospel that fills you know, our sails with, with wind, the, the energy to actually go and to live the Christian life. Uh, thirdly, we believe in every member serving. And really, this is our reasonable response to the gospel, right? In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you know, Paul tells us that to, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that's all in response to God's mercy. And so there are to be no passive participants in the church. Indeed, one of the primary reasons God saves us is to rescue us from an existence leading to death and to set us free to serve him with joy. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Um, Paul, or... Um, uh, well, never mind, I'll just skip that. I need to save a little bit of time here. Uh, so servanthood is, is modeled by, by Jesus' example. 
Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so servanthood was modeled by Jesus' example, and, um, and it's mandated by Jesus' call. He calls us to follow him and to, to walk in his footsteps. Mark 10, verses 43 through 45 says, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must become your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our service in the church, it's not something we're just doing on our own accord, but it's really empowered by the Spirit of God. In 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I absolutely love that verse, and it, it, it astounds me because... Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying like God is giving grace to his people, but he's not giving it directly to them. That he, he pours out his grace through us in the different gifts that he's given. And so if we're not serving in the church with the gifts that God's given us, we're literally withholding God's grace from other people in our lives who need it. And so I think that's uh, all the motivation in the world for us to, to be serving and to be using the gifts that, that God has given us. And then equipping members for, for service is the call of, of pastors, Ron and Lynn. Part of their job description is to equip us for the work of the ministry. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so that's what they're doing. God has this, this amazing plan that Jesus accomplished our redemption, and then he's applying it to us by, by the Holy Spirit through these gifts that he's given to the church. And he gives us pastors who then equip us to, to do the work of the ministry, and God pours his grace through us. And he's doing this all until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, attaining the fullness of the measure of Christ. Like that's God's doing a lot of big things. It might look pretty ordinary here as we're kind of just fellowshipping together and the things that we do, but, but uh, if we could see from his perspective, he really is doing an amazing thing. Uh, fourthly, uh, intentional relationships. In the, in the book of 1 John, uh, John really tells us that God saved us for fellowship with himself and for fellowship with one another. That's what all of this is about. And so just as the Christian life isn't to be passive, neither is it to be isolated. Because the Holy Spirit at conversion joins us to Christ's body, our relationships are to be marked by this reality. We don't simply hold the same beliefs or attain the same service or share the same interests. We have been united at the deepest level by the Spirit of God. Biblically speaking, our fellowship is not merely socializing. It's sharing together our common life in Christ. 
I heard someone say one time that the, the, the two most different Christians have more in common than the two most similar people in the world. And that's so true because we have the same spirit that dwells within us, the same mind of Christ, the same future, the same destiny, the same loves, all of those things. And that's what, that's what fellowship is, is sharing in, those, sharing in the very life of God together is what this, this fellowship is. And it's not an optional thing. Look at this J.I. Packer quote. He says, We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional additional or addition to the exercise of private devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. Because of the importance of relationships in the body of Christ and our sinful tendencies to be independent, casual, or selfish in relating to others, we need to be intentional in pursuing them. And here are two aspects of relationships that are genuinely biblical. And so we're going to talk about discipling and caring. And really, this is, is, this is why there's such an emphasis in our church on joining a community group, because, you know, you don't see the word community group in the Bible or anything like that, but this really does provide an avenue for us to do these things, to disciple um, one another to, and to care for one another. Um, one of the, the neatest things about, about coming to this church for me personally was, um, you know, I was driving up every week an hour or hour and a half on Sundays. And so there was a, a community group that met on Sunday afternoon. So it was the only other way that I could be involved in the life of the church. And it was a, a group of very, very different people, honestly, that I would have never picked to be a part of, you know, myself, you know, just because I probably would have picked other people in my life, you know, stage or, you know, whatever it was. But it was so neat to, to get to know all of these people, different stages of life, different age, different race, you know, different backgrounds. And just to see how the Lord, you know, knitted us together as a group who loved one another, cared for one another people that were just praying for me and my family when I was going through some just very, very difficult times. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just been a wonderful thing to see how this discipling and caring happens kind of in those environments. So discipling. Uh, it says, this word has many connotations, but, but by it we mean simply people helping each other understand and applying God's word to their lives to become more like Christ. Again, it says in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the mandate of making disciples is characterized by baptizing and teaching people to observe all that Jesus commanded. Within the church, the most fundamental way we do this is through relationships fueled by the word of God that encourage us, exhort us, and strengthen us in our walk with Christ. And that's why it's so important that we do this. In Hebrews, Hebrews 3, you know, he exhorts us to not neglect the, the gathering together of the saints um, because, because uh, sin can have such a hardening and deceitful effect on our lives. We need to be encouraged and reminded um, by one another as often as we can. Also, in Ephesians 4, verses 15 through 16, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for, from whom the whole body joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. 
So that's discipling. One of the reasons that we meet together in our community groups or even just in, you know, with our pastors and things is just to be disciples so that we grow in our ability to live out um, what God is working in our lives. You know, the Bible tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it says to do that because God is at work within us. And so believing that, that's what we, we, we seek to be discipled and we seek to be these learners who are continually growing in our love for God and our love for one another. And it says, as members of one another, we have a responsibility to care for one another. The Bible describes our fellowship in concrete terms as actions we do with or for one another. And this is just a small sampling of all of the one another commands that are in the Bible. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Worship God together, pray for one another, carry one another's burdens, encourage one another, build one another up, confess our sins to one another. And if you read those and you're just pretty much coming to church on a Sunday and then, you know, leaving really quickly after the sermon, it's really hard to do all of those things that God wants us to do. And so that's one of the reasons that we do have community groups, just an environment that kind of fosters this care for one another and opportunities to, to, to do all of these one another's. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 through 26, Paul writes, he says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I was just telling Joey earlier and, um, that in our community group this, this last week, you know, was kind of a, a very good picture of that. We had, you know, just a, a number of people who were, who were suffering. And we were able to just tell these people, you know, like, like we're in this together. Like we're suffering with you. We are praying with you, you know, through these things. And that's what the, the Bible calls us to do because we, we are a body. If, if one of us is doing well, we're all doing well. But if one of us is suffering, we're all suffering. And uh, we're going to do that together. In short, we need each other, and so we must give ourselves to purposeful involvement in each other's lives for the strength of the body, the witness of the gospel, and the glory of God. Uh, those are three reasons that we do these things, for the strength of the body, the witness of the gospel, and the glory of God. Those are three pretty big things if you think about it. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of my favorite illustrations of this, this verse was we had a, a campus Bible study at my, my college, and um, there was uh, a number of people, just unbelievers, that, that came, and, and uh, one of the girls that ended up being converted at our Bible study said, um, I was drawn to this group because I, I saw that you truly loved one another. And it was so cool to hear that, and just proof of you know, that Jesus is drawing people to himself by our love and our care for one another. Uh, and then finally, um, he's, we do this also for the, the glory of God. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so as we care for one another, as Jose sets up signs on Sundays, like God is, is glorified. People see God's glory in a greater way because of our service and our care for one another in those ways.
Uh, Fifth, uh, faithfully evangelistic. We desire to cultivate a church culture where every uh, member understands their biblical responsibility and privilege of sharing the gospel with others. And honestly, we don't want you to join this church simply to just be a part of this church, but we want you to join this church because we want to be a part of the broader mission of of being used by God to seek and to save the lost as um, planting other churches. And and, and if we're not doing that, if we're not creating that kind of culture, we'll become very ingrown, very selfish, and that's the, the last thing that we want to do. We see this in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. And so we want to be faithful um, to God's call for us to take the gospel to a lost and a dying world. The content of our evangelism is the gospel. It says we're not merely called to, to calling others to a moral life, to be better people, or asking them to simply believe in God or go to church, much less of trying to convince them that Christians are nice people, because salvation comes only through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we're not even pointing people to our example. It's not even my testimony that's the gospel. God has worked in my life in a powerful way, and that is um, evidence of God's grace. But ultimately, we're pointing away from ourselves to the gospel that saves people, that Jesus died to save sinners. And we fully believe this because John 3.3 says that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And so we want to equip every member to, to be able to verbally share the gospel with others. Uh, and, and so we want to, the, the context of our evangelism, we want to do this both personally and corporately. And so we encourage each other and in, in our members to bear witness to Jesus Christ and to share the gospel in the network of relationships that he provides for us and in the context where we have particular opportunity or that for which we have a particular burden. You know, it's amazing to see, we read in the, in the book of Acts that God has designed that people will even live in the places that they live so that they will hear about him and find him and reach out for him. I had uh, one of my best friends since I was was eight years old. I could see his backyard from mine. And uh, somehow in in God's providence, you know, he he brought us together as as friends and and used um, just um, what what God had done in my life to to open his eyes, you know, to the gospel. And it just showed me like how God does sovereignly work all of those relationships together and how he plants us in different places so that he might, you know, continue to to save people and bring people into his family and his kingdom. Uh, We also seek to do this corporately. It says the New Testament presents unity in the church body as a primary witness to the supernatural power of the gospel. And so we try to have different opportunities to introduce people to, to you know, the most powerful witness to the truth of the gospel, the community of our local church. And so um, just like VBS, that's what we're doing VBS this whole week coming up is, is an opportunity is our church to, to showcase the love of Christ for one another and for our community and to just introduce people into the, to the life of the church and to, to show them and hopefully through, through our love for one another that they will see who Jesus is and will be attracted to that and will have an opportunity to say, you know, to share the, the life-giving message of the gospel. 
And we also want to do this just as by, I mean, and that's why we, we want to preach the gospel every single week from, from the front, that, that if you have an unbelieving friend, you, you have confidence that you can bring them to church, no matter who's preaching, no matter what we're, what we're preaching about, that Jesus Christ is going to be preached and that they will hear the gospel no matter when you, sh- you show up with them. And, uh, and because it's the same gospel that saves people is the same gospel that strengthens us as Christians. And so we're doing, you know, that one thing, but it has those multiple effects. Uh, next, we want to be a church that prays together. Uh, we desire the life and ministry of our church individually and corporately to be dependent upon and fueled by prayer. Uh, Prayer is at the very heart of our existence. Prayer lies at the very heart of God's eternal plan to have a people for himself, a people who know him and who are known by him. And so prayer is not simply something Christians do. It's an expression of who we are. Children of a loving heavenly father who uh, live delighting in him and dependent on him. I mean, prayer for us really is the air that we breathe as Christians. You know, that's why it talks about saying like, Abba, Father. Like that should be as natural to us as as breathing comes to our physical lives. Jesus said, and when you pray, but when you pray, when you pray, he said, pray like this, our our Father who is in heaven. And we're also told to, to pray without ceasing. God does amazing things, but for some reason, he wants us to ask. And, and so that's what we're doing when we're going to prayer. And so prayer is at the very heart of our, our ministry. In Acts 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Colossians 4, 2 also says to devote ourselves to, be, to, to prayer, being watchful and being thankful. Uh, this is one of uh, the most amazing prayers, I think, that Paul prays in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend all of the, with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is astounding. Like he's saying, you need help to understand how much God loves you. And so Paul's prayer was that God's Spirit would fill our hearts to give us the capacity to understand the height and depth and love that Jesus has for us. That is just an amazing thought. In Colossians 4.2, he says, um, oh, I already read that, uh, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful and in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is also at the very heart of our mission. In Matthew 9, Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And really, that's what we want to do. We want to plant churches. We want to see people saved. And that's going to start with prayer. Colossians 4, verses 3 through 4 says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door of for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This one isn't written down for you, but I would suggest that you write this down because this really shows the effectiveness of prayer. In, in 2 Corinthians 1, verses, verse 11, Paul says this. He says, You must also help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us 
through the prayers of many. Paul understood that somehow, some way, in God's sovereignty, he was helped. The mission of the gospel was helped by the prayers of his people. And part of the reason for that was so that people, all of those people, would give thanks when God heard those prayers and acted on their behalf. And so God powerfully does answer prayer and work through it. Uh, next, uh, we also uh, value experiencing God's presence. It says, A vibrant experience of the Holy Spirit is not meant to be the domain of a narrow brand of Christian. The Spirit is God's empowering presence for the entirety of the life of the Christian and the church. One of the things that I think my attention has just been captivated by over the last few years is thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. One of my seminary professors one time said that, 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 just real casually, he was like, he said, it's not that Jesus just flipped on the God switch whenever he needed to. He said, no, Jesus depended on the power of the Holy Spirit just like we did, yet he did that perfectly. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit that, that enabled Jesus to live that life and to die that death on our behalf. And, and that, that was just an astounding thought to me that that same uh, spirit lives within us. The same spirit that empowered Jesus' life and ministry and death is the same spirit that lives within us and that we have available to us. John 14, verses 16 through 18, Jesus essentially says that. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Gordon Fee says this. He says, The Spirit's major role in Paul's view of things lies with his being the absolute essential constituent of the whole Christian life from beginning to end. The Spirit thus empowers ethical life in all of its dimensions, personal, corporate, and in the world. Believers in Christ who are for Paul's Spirit people first and foremost are variously described as living by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing fruit of the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit. The Spirit conforms the believer into the likeness of Christ to the glory of God. The Spirit is therefore the empowering presence of God for living the new life of God in the present. There's another verse, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, that I, that I absolutely love, but it talks about the Spirit as being the one who opens our eyes to understand the things freely given by God to us in Jesus Christ. And so all of our life is based on, on uh, the gospel by the power of the Spirit is how we live that out. So it says the Bible doesn't just tell us things to believe about the Spirit, it exhorts us to a posture of heart concerning the Spirit's work. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. If we know that God is giving grace to his people through us, through spiritual gifts, that's something we want to earnestly seek from God. You know, Jesus, Jesus tells us, uh, he says, he tells us to, to pray for God's spirit. He says, you know, he likens this to, to um, you know, he says, how much more will, will God give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, and so it's something that we, we purposefully and, and continually do and are just this posture we're supposed to have of seeking God's spirit and presence in our lives. In James verses four, or chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will free, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we do that by seeking the, the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
says this posture has both personal and corporate implications. We experience the Spirit's empowering work as we passionately seek God and dependently serve God. And so we pursue God's active presence personally. We approach God daily with an attitude of dependence, of gratefulness, and of hunger. And we recognize our need to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And when they had prayed, the the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. In the scriptures, there's such a, a correlation between it. It calls us to, to, um, to let the word of Christ dwell richly. And when we're doing that, we're, we're speaking the, the praises of God out. And, and you see that, that letting the word of God dwell in us richly has the same effect that, that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us has. You know, that, that, those, that the Spirit is using the word of God in our hearts to, to do that. And one of the things that we do is to serve uh, others diligently. We've already looked at this, this passage in 1 Peter 4 a few times, so I won't read that again. But the Spirit's empowering work aims at our personal sanctification, mutual, mutual edification, and evangelistic witness. To pursue godliness, to serve others, and to share Christ with non-believers is to pursue the Spirit's work in our lives. So we want to do that on an, on an individual basis, but we also want to do that when we gather together corporately. It says, while individual believers have the privilege of experiencing God's presence, this is especially true of the gathered church. The glorious reality of the new covenant worship is worship in the presence of God. We know that we are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And Paul uses that metaphor. And when he says you, it's, it's a plural you. Together, we, you know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that gathers, or that speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what happens when we gather together. That's really an amazing thought. When we gather together on a Sunday morning, there is so much more that is going on than meets the eye. Um, and and that, that passage is just kind of proof to that. So it says, when we, when we gather, we seek to experience his presence by attending to God as he addresses us through his word, responding him in grateful adoration. We read that, that God inhabits the praises of his people, that he is present to bless us uh, as we praise him and through his word, and then seeking to love, serve, and encourage one another with our gifts. Um, and then finally, uh, partnering in the broader mission. And this is just another huge reason that attracted me to, to Sovereign Grace is just their emphasis on planting churches, emphasis on wanting to take the, the gospel to the world. And I really do believe that um, planting churches is the way that, that God has designed us to do that. And it says, while we have a specific mission as a church, we are also part of Sovereign Grace family of churches. Sovereign Grace is a union of over, it says 60 churches here, but that might even be more now. I'm not sure how many that is. In the United States, Mexico, Canada, and the UK. We also have a functional partnership with churches in 15 other countries, which is probably a few more than that at this point too. Um, but anyway, as churches, we partner together with, with Sovereign Grace churches in a number of ways to, to church plant locally and internationally. Uh, pastoral training, we have a, a pastor's college. 
uh, in Kentucky now. Uh, Short-term missions, uh, music materials. I'm sure a lot of you have heard uh, kind of a thing that advertises for our church quite a bit is Sovereign Grace Music, uh, and then also the, the conferences. And so we're, we're grateful for the privilege to, to participate in a broader mission through Sovereign Grace. We look forward to exploring more ways in which we can directly contribute to the, to the Great Commission as a local church. And I can't tell you the, the blessing of, that I've just seen in that, just even in my, you know, my internship here. You know, just being able to go to the pastor's conferences and, and uh, our regional assembly and to see just God working through not just Ron and Lynn, but this, this broader assembly of pastors who, who all have the same love for Jesus, the same love for the gospel, the same desire to take the gospel and to, to have God use it to, say, to seek and to save the lost. And we're able to do so much more because we belong to a denomination of churches like this. You know, I've been a part of a, a number of just individual churches, and there's a, a certain amount of things that you can do for the sake of the gospel. But when we're partnering together with other 60, 70 churches, there's a lot more that we can do, you know, for the sake of the gospel. And so really, um, as you guys are, are taking this class and, and thinking through these things, you know, we're not just looking for a place to go to church. Um, like, we want you to be a part of this church for the sake even of fulfilling the Great Commission. We want you to, to join us and to help us to go out and to, to plant other churches and to, so that God might use us to, to take the, the gospel to a lost and a dying world. And so those are the things that, uh, the, the values that shape our church. Um, so I guess I'll go ahead and uh, open this up for any questions or comments that you have.